Hi folks, this is the Green Europe podcast, an Irish podcast about the European Union and environmentalism. You can call me the Green Man and this episode is specifically, or at least largely, about the EU Green Deal. We're going to be going over some very, very basic top-level stuff about what is the European Green Deal. I'll be breaking down some of its stated intentions and I will be addressing some of the preliminary criticisms of it so we can get an idea as to whether you know is this a really effective tool uh, to make some real progress with environmental changes or is it a bit of greenwashing or is it a little bit of both depending on who you are talking to so that's what we're going to be doing in this episode. Uh, Before I get to that stuff I'll just say you can reach out to us on Twitter where we are at Green Europe One. We also have an email address where we are Green Europe Podcast at gmail.com. So, any ideas, thoughts, uh, or even corrections, you know, we can take those. Uh, that's how you can get in touch with us. And uh, a lot of this is me um, kind of upskilling and learning more about the European process, especially the European legislation side of things. My background is in academics, so the sort of ecological academic side of things. So it's very interesting for me to uh, branch out into the political stuff and even the activist stuff, which honestly is quite a different world to that of the the um, ecological academic people think there's a lot of crossover and sometimes that's true but I've always found myself they are very much kind of like separate spheres Uh, and whether or not that ought to be the case I think is something I might mention later and something we might get into as I'm always saying in these early episodes something we'll have to (laughs) we'll have to get into more depth in future episodes because all I'm doing with these early ones is kind, kind of like marking out the territory just covering some of the basics some of the real basic stuff that will hopefully allow us to get into more depth and more contemporary and more kind of on-the-nose topics a little bit later on. So I dropped into a few uh, online talks this week just to kind of uh, dip my toes in the water of, you know, both the politics and the activist side of what's happening with uh, European-level environmental stuff. And I, yeah, I have a few thoughts about that. So I dropped into the group called Your Your Europe, Your Say, which is mostly about... um, kind of championing the voices of young people in Europe uh, for environmentalist topics. So they had a, a an online event called Our Climate, Our Future. And one of the speakers was Anuna de Vever, who is part of the Youth for Climate uh, group. And, and then this is like a number of quite young people who are activists, who are doing strikes and um, kind of like awareness campaigns and stuff like that. And it was very interesting for me to see uh, activists interacting with kind of more entrenched sort of establishment, you know, you know, groups that operate within the EU establishment. And just to, to see the kind of tone and the sort of language that was used and that wasn't used, coming from an academic background, um, there are expectations of tone and language in what I'm used to, uh, which is to try and sound as sort of aloof and distant as you can. There, I guess there always has been this sort of ivory tower element to academia which is that you know we do the science and then somebody else has to figure out what to do with it and it is wrong for us to have political ideas or to let them sink into our work or anything like that so it was interesting for me to hear um uh, Devaver using language like talking about the green deal and saying that it's a it's a wonderful intention but it's like a book that hasn't been written yet i believe was the language used the idea being that the green deal is is 
you know, it's it's intention and nothing more so far. And it's indicative of a certain amount of will that's there for good. But um, a lot of people in the activist movement have yet to be convinced that there's anything in it that is the kind of level of substance that they would require. And that in order for that to happen, um, there's going to need to be a lot of pressure on politicians and especially from young people, which is the point of groups like Youth for Climate. Um, it was also mentioned during this talk that this has to be both a top-down thing and a bottom-up thing, indicating, I, I suppose, a willingness to work within the system and within the systems that are there. And when you deal with, when you deal with both ecologists and activists, to be honest, you will meet people who feel that our current system is is really not fit for purpose, and that the change is needed to address the real concerns of of climate and everything and. Uh, like biodiversity and ecology crisis really are not enough the systems we're in are going to have to change utterly so i'm always trying to judge where that line is and, and what people are really looking for so yeah for me this was an interesting conjunction of the activist world and the more established structures and i was i was impressed with the seriousness of the language used by all and um, the the sort of houses burning analogy you know which i, I believe comes from thunberg is was, was used and it was nice to see sort of establishment groups operating with that language and accepting it and just saying yes we were aware that you know this is the degree of seriousness of the problems we're dealing with and not using any euphemisms i suppose another chat i dropped in on this week was from european movement international um and they are having this kind of european chats it's hashtag european chats online and we there was jo joseph elborn from the european youth forum was talking and blatantly use the language that we, we have to rethink capitalism, which I think so. And I think if people are not using are not using language at least that strong, I think that they're sort of just shuffling data around on spreadsheets and changing things a little bit. And it's not going to be enough to deal with the with the severity of the problem that we're dealing with. And I say this not as an activist but as a, as a scientist, to be honest. So I was pleased to hear that. Also speaking was um, Adelaide Charlier, who is also from Youth for Climate, and Skye Keller, who's co-president of the Greens in the uh, European Union Parliament, and very skillfully fielded a question about, you know, is this because politicians, you know, are these problems because politicians don't know the information? And she, she basically said, no, they know. There's enough information out there you know, the science is there for everybody to see. It's a matter of will. And um, it's a matter of, you know, which political groups are looking to achieve what. So uh, usually, as with all things, it comes down to money and it comes down to power and it comes down to, you know, who are politicians going to listen to at the end of the day. And uh, unfortunately, very often it is the folks who have the deep pockets. So I like to see these conversations happening. It is with this kind of attitude that I'm going to be examining the European Green Deal. So I'm going, to, I'm going to start off with the language used by the European project itself. So they're calling it a growth strategy um, and, and one that will require the approval of all member states and parliaments. That, that meaning that it is a big um, many-sided thing that will play out and grow very slowly as it's sort of made making its way through the different parliaments of the different member states. The Guardian, who I often, I often find, I mean, as much as they have a reputation for being sort of left, I find them to be sort of bourgeoisie left and uh, usually aren't calling for the sort of large level change that would always be needed. But they're fairly um, critical about some of this stuff. Here's what they said when the 
European Green Deal was first announced, they wrote, If it sounds ambitious, it is. The European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen calls it Europe's man-on-the-moon moment. Nothing similar has been attempted before, as the pattern of human progress since the Industrial Revolution has been one of relentless exploitation and despoilment of the natural world, filling the atmosphere with carbon and the seas with plastic. Nearly every major aspect of the European economy will have to be overhauled, from energy generation to food consumption, from transport to manufacturing and construction. In part, this will build on two decades of work in a few of these sectors, such as directives mandating renewable energy and cutting air pollution. Previous efforts were piecemeal, limited in scope and sometimes flaccid in execution. Energy-intensive industries, for instance, have been covered by an emissions trading scheme since 2005, but political pressure kept the price of carbon low, rendering it largely ineffectual. And and that's from The Guardian, who I consider to be far from, from radical, and I think most uh, journalism-savvy folks would say the same thing. So I, I like this idea that... So that lets us know something about the scale of, uh, of the problem that we're dealing with. So there are three concrete actions that the Green Deal is 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 addressing. So number one, and this, this is the biggie, they're looking for no net emissions of greenhouse gas by 2050. Uh, and to give something of a, uh, you know, give you an idea of like where we're really at using 1990 levels as a base, we've uh, decreased by about a quarter, a quarter since then. So we're going to have to do a whole lot more. Uh, number two is they want economic growth decoupled from resource use. And number three, they want no person or place left behind. So, I mean, these these are laudable and this tells me that they understand the problems, they understand the core. And, and these three taken together w- would, in theory, do a whole lot because I think our primary issue, as, as The Guardian pointed out, was that human progress, if you want to use that word, for hundreds of years since the Industrial Revolution has literally been going in one direction, which is to use whatever um, fuels and whatever uh, processes are available to us to, you know, produce more stuff and, you know, make life easier for ourselves in many ways. And we've never once before had to actually address this way of doing things so you will i do come across people who are very optimistic and say well you know i have a lot of faith in in humanity and in the ingenuity of people and we've we've dealt with problems before and we can deal with this one and that is absolutely true but i think you have to recognize the nature of the problem we're dealing with it it does call for a very fundamental change in the way we tackle problems and, and it's completely different from how we've tackled problems previously uh, some of the major environmental successes we've had over the decades and people usually point to the the banning on cfcs and the hole in the ozone layer and uh, and, and a few and, and acid rain problems we did solve those because um you know the information went out there people took it seriously and action was taken we have a different problem now, which is that the information is out there, but there's a lot of misinformation out there as well. And there is a lot of bad information and a lot of big money going to actually stop any of these things being changed. So it's not that we're incapable of coming up with technological alternatives. It's not that we're incapable of understanding um, what needs to be done. It's that the politics have become far murkier than they were even in the 1960s and the 1970s. So the European Green Deal proposes 
what they call a European climate law to make all this into a legal obligation. So that would be a top-down change in European law. Um, you know, to, to get these achievements done. And that would obviously filter down to lots of little laws in lots of different countries. Again, a very, very big process. Um, it's It's been quoted as being Europe's man on the moon moment <laughs> to kind of explain the uh, the greatness of the task that is ahead of the European Green Deal. So what are the ways in which they're hoping to achieve this? So investing in environmentally friendly technology. So that sounds good. Um, supporting industry to allow them to innovate that's crucial if you're going to tell you know for a large-scale industry that they have to be doing everything extremely differently well you know they need to be supported whether that's grants whether that's um you know other injections injections of cash in some sort of a way that's incredibly important they're looking for cleaner private and public transport and crucially they're looking to decarbonize the energy sector Okay, so all those things sound good. One of the um, elements supposed to facilitate all of this is the what they call the Just Transition Mechanism. So these are funds uh, that are put out there to those affected by the changes. Again, if you're used to doing business in a certain way and suddenly these laws make it so you can't operate your business in the way you're used to, yeah, you ought to be supported by the government or the political structure that is putting these changes upon you. Absolutely. So... Again, it all it all sounds like good stuff. At least they're aware of what some of these problems are going to be um, and in theory are putting things in place to do something about it. Now, the timeline for this, the European Commission first presented the European Green Deal back in December 2019, so not a tremendously long time ago. And probably the most recent big thing that happened with it was in January of 2021. They put together something called the New European Bauhaus. I like saying Bauhaus, it's a good word, which is a, a European Union-wide uh, sustainability project. It, it does lots of different things. There isn't a, a quick way to explain what that really is. So <clears throat> there are so many different elements to this and so many different targets that it's trying to target. <laughs> um, I'm going to focus once again on the ones that I know the most about. So biodiversity, being my own background in wildlife legislation and ecology, so they're looking to establish protected areas for at least 30% of all land in Europe and 30% of all sea in Europe. Again, so that sounds good. If you listen to our previous episode where we talked a little bit about ecological assessment and wildlife legislation, you'll remember that protected, in scare quotes, doesn't always mean what it sounds like to everybody. So... You know, I, th I think the, the general public has this idea, oh, uh, an area is protected. That means, you know, it's cordoned off and you can't do anything with it. And, and that's just not the case, um, certainly not in Europe anyway. So protected can mean anything from, you know, you can't do anything to it to, you know, the pe people are living there. People live within the area, but there are restrictions on what they can build. So, for example, the big national parks in the UK have you know, hundreds of thousands of, of people living in some of them, you know, like like up in in Yorkshire, because, you know, a national park doesn't mean an area of pristine rainforest or, you know, deciduous woodland. It could mean an area of rolling hills that are maintained by sheep farming with cute little villages in it, which is lovely in, in its own way. And it does achieve, you know, a certain kind of biodiversity merit. Uh, it, it absolutely does. But, you know, it's a little bit of a fudge to say, Oh, we know we're going to protect 30% of land in Europe. You know, what does protect mean? And what kind of loopholes are there, I think, more importantly? 
but it is a start and it, it, it is a good thing. Now there's lots in the in the paper about the Green Deal, about savings, like how much money they're going to save doing this and uh, positive economic sort of developments. And they're basically talking about nature as economy. So again, sometimes I find it a little sad that we, we have to talk about th this stuff in terms of money, like as if that's the only way in which we can quantify the benefit of something. But at the end of the day, money talks and that is how everything works. So yeah, you do have to make this work economically one way or another. So they emphasize, look, some industries are going to take a hit and eventually be phased out. But the idea is that we are creating new ones and this will be good for jobs in the long term. So I, I mean, that's realistic. That is how you're going to have to talk about this. Um, and that is what you're going to have to emphasize so that people will understand and be in favor of this and it will remain popular politically. They're saying that 25% of the EU budget altogether will be dedicated to climate action. Again, that could mean a lot of things, you know, what is considered climate action. Does that mean investing in new green technology? Maybe sometimes it does, maybe other times it means, you know, paying Exxon to, you know, do a little bit of R&D uh, for some new technologies that they're maybe not going to fund later on. It depends. It really... It can mean a lot of different things. And again, I'm just laying out the, the basics here. Some of these details I'm sure we will do entire episodes on in the future. Uh, but a lot of this is written under a a, a, power, a a chapter called The Business Case for Biodiversity. Again, we, you know, it's like we have to quantify uh, the, the benefit of biodiversity in, in terms of money, which is, like I said, is both a little sad but also practical. Now, the European Green Deal, of course, has not been without its controversies or its contradictions. So from influencemap.org, uh, they give a story about ex good old ExxonMobil. So ExxonMobil basically having maybe a little, a little too much influence in some of the preliminary uh, talks about the European Green Deal. So some data has come out, some documents have leaked to show that prior to the announcement of the Green Deal, ExxonMobil had lobbied for and successfully got a, you know, a conversation with the movers and writers of the Green Deal beforehand. And what they were trying to do was to push to remove some of the strict CO2 vehicle tailpipe standards. Now, my question would be, why are ExxonMobil in the room? They have repeatedly proven themselves to be bad faith actors when it comes to this stuff. It's, it's not just... They have previously failed to, to attend EU hearings on climate denial, of which they uh, have been one of the major, major parties since the 1970s, going back all that time. And uh, as such, they have um, avoided bans and avoided um, fines for their various misdemeanors. And only about 3% of their R&D money gets spent on any kind of low carbon tech, which shows you really where their priorities are. So if a company is as big as them and is, is so invested in doing things the old dirty fuel way and uh, that they are putting almost no money or time into their sort of research for, you know, low carbon tech, well, that shows you what they expect the future to be like. And that will be the kind of future that they work towards and will lobby towards. Various environmental bodies who have claimed that to them they find the Green Deal is not drastic enough. And when they look at the science, they're saying, look, these changes are not going to match up with the targets that we're setting ourselves. These groups include Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, and the Institute for European Environmental Policy. So by all means, um, 
you know, your own opinions about those various groups will, will affect, of course, what they have to say about all of this. The most in-depth criticism of the Green Deal kind of points out that what it mostly does is it reshuffles exist rather than coming up with large amounts of new money it's it's came to be a one trillion euro sort of an endeavor and um, the guardian again claims that this is mostly reshuffling existing european funds around from one account to another in order to nudge private industry in particular directions so once again it's it's kind of depending on private industry largely to get on board with all of this the guardian also talks about what they call decarbonization barons which are individual groups that, you know, take this this stimulus money uh, and they sometimes will provide upskilling. So the example they give is miners in, um, I think it was Transylvania, the Transylvania region. So obviously mining as a, a fossil fuel industry is, the attempt is, is, and the hope is to phase it out over, you know, a long enough period of time, but that these people will obviously have to be retrained and, and entire new industries will have to be encouraged in order to prevent uh, disastrous problems with unemployment, obviously. Uh, what's happening sometimes is that these groups pop up to um, uh, hoover up that money and will sometimes, you know, provide upskilling sessions. But even, even after all this, sometimes there's nowhere for these new workers to go because private investment and jobs in new economic sectors haven't materialized. So again, it's, it's very complicated stuff, you know. We're dealing with... We have to be thinking long-term. It's really the only way to do it. And we have to be aware that whatever we take away with the one hand, we have to be putting back with the other. The Guardian points out that if you break down the, the budget on this, it's nothing near one trillion new money. It comes down to about 7.5 billion. And, he say, and they say, compare this to the 29 billion that the EU is already committed to putting into gas profits during the same period. So it's it's like... We're looking to make these changes and we've put aside a certain amount of money for that to happen, but we have a lot more money still, you know, providing the, propping up the old industries that are actively hindering us from meeting these environmental goals. So that's the, the toughest take on the Green Deal. I, I have to put it out there. I would feel remiss not doing it. But again, this is all stuff I hope to get into in more depth in the future. Let's finish up by talking about Ireland in particular and maybe some of the ways in which uh, some of the starting points that we've got to get on board with this project. So in Ireland, um, air pollutants, unusually, because across the EU in general, actually air quality and water quality is one of the, there are two of the things that we've done quite well with, especially compared to, you know, other big e economies around the world. But in Ireland, air pollutants at, at 33 monitoring stations are above WHO health levels. And that seems to be largely because of um, solid fuels being burnt in, in cities and towns. The UK put in a law to kind of clamp down on that just a couple of years ago, actually. Maybe we'll do something similar, but it, it was not popular there. It was seen as counter to the culture. And we all like our, you know, our, our peat fires or our coal fires and... Um, it, I, I think a move to axe that would not be popular here. Certainly, if it doesn't come with a a similar move to clamp down on very, very large organizations and companies, you know, who are contributing vastly more to the same problem, I would guess. Also in Ireland, um, emissions of greenhouse gases have actually increased since 2005. And under our current sort of operating system, even with the Ireland Climate Plan, 
This increase is set to continue until at least 2040. So we've got some big changes that need to be made. Clearly, uh, Ireland missed its targets uh, between 2013 and 2020 for both uh, the amount of renewables and the emissions. Not by very much, by, by quite small amounts, but still not hugely encouraging. 2019 was the ninth year in a row the temperatures were above normal in Ireland. I, I place slightly less stock in that one just because climate is is a global thing and it's it's it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you know choose one area and say oh this area is heating because of the policies of that individual country. It, gen it that generally is not the case. The amount of money, in case you're interested, that Ireland has been allocated for its part in the European Green Deal and achieving those objectives that I said earlier is 13 billion for this transition. So, you know, I'm as optimistic as I can be. So here's hoping that that money gets put into sensible things, which is, you know, helping to wind down certain industries while responsibly bringing other industries online according to a reasonably sensible timeline. That's everything I have to say for this episode, folks. This has been Green Europe. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time.